Instead of thinking, oh, I need to have persona, user journey, and the design brief in my case study, think of, did I show the elements of critical thinking in my story? Did I show that I collaborate with other people? Did I show that I maybe challenge status quo? Did I show that I can articulate my decisions? These are the checklists that you should rather try to focus on. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the next episode of Honest UX Talks. My name is Advisa, and I'm joined today by my lovely co-host, Ioana. And today we're going to, again, talk about the portfolios and job applications. Particularly, we would like to talk about why you might not get any feedback or response on your job application. So let's tackle the problem when you are applying for a job, you keep sending a lot of applications, you keep writing those motivational or cover letters, you keep adding your CV or portfolio, you think it's all good, you validated it maybe with the mentor, but you still don't get any response. Why it might be happening? Let's dive into this topic. I think it's a very, very typical and big topic this year because I can see a lot of layoffs are happening this year in pretty much every tech company, every high-valued company that was evaluated a lot in the last couple of years. We can see a lot of layoffs happening in the design departments as well. It's a very sad thing, but also it gives an opportunity. But at the same time, you get stuck in the mindset of that company and you forget how to reframe your portfolio so you can actually find better opportunities. So either you are looking for one of the first jobs or you're trying to apply to a new company after being in another company for a while. We can actually try to talk about it. But before diving into this topic, we would also like to thank our sponsor, Figura.digital for helping and supporting our podcast and episodes. For those who is not familiar, Figura.digital is the most UX-friendly network and freelancing platform for designers. The magic behind it is that you go through the design-friendly application process just once, and you don't have to apply for a job many, many times, go through the rounds of interviews, get rejected, go through that heartbreak again, try to tune your portfolio, basically what we will talk about in this episode. So it's a process where you only once go through the hiring process, you have to know where would you like to work and the platform will do them the matchmaking magic to find the right client for you. And also they have a really nice minimum wages. So it's above the average on the market. And also you get the access to the community, to the support, to even some mentoring. So I think it's a really, really, really nice opportunity, especially if you, for example, are looking for the next gig. Maybe you can find a great company starting being a freelancer, a contractor, and that way you can also transition to a product troll if you want to be in-house at the end. That's one of the ways. Definitely check it out. Go to the link in the show notes, figure out the digital. They probably will have more information there. All right. That being said, I would also like to ask, how have you been doing, Ioana, in the last week? First of all, hi, everyone. I'm happy to be here with Amphi and with you. My past week was, uh, in the beginning, I thought it's going to be a super chill week where I'm, I don't have a lot of things on my to-do list. And then I don't know what happened. I think life just happened. And, and I had absolutely no free hour. <laughs> like, it just immediately got super busy, super tied up. And I had a very, very hectic and intense week and a lot of conversations, a lot of work to do, a lot of projects, a lot of things, a lot of design work. Yeah, it's exciting, but I'm a bit tired. <laughs> and as as our listeners know, I just returned to work to the office after two year parental leave. And it feels like I'm joining a new company. And it's very exciting because the design culture has evolved a lot. We were building a design system when I left, but now we have a consolidated design system that's very mature. We have a dedicated team that handles the design system 
ecosystem. It's incredible to feel like you're joining a new company, a more mature company this time. So it feels like I'm getting an upgrade. <laughs> yeah. And also a lot of difficult personal moments, if you want. So on the professional side, I'm making some tough decisions in, in this uh, time of my life. And it comes with a lot of anxiety and uh, like sadness. But I will be talking more about that in, in the upcoming uh, weeks. I think uh, that's it. Let's dive into the topic for today. Like we said, the topic of today is why nobody is responding to your job application. And I would like to start from maybe like high level perspective, right? So as the potential lead or candidate, let's take a very typical funnel, right? You probably go online, you search for job positions online and job posting uh, boards or in Glassdoor or I don't know, like LinkedIn, people go to different job boards. I recently did a survey and I believe that 99% went through the job boards. Like there are people who were going through the personal referrals as well, social media sometimes, like few channels, but really the most standing out channel was job boards, be it on Glassdoor, LinkedIn, local job board platform, and uh, and try to look there for jobs. It's a very, very, very common approach to start looking for open positions. And so you go through the first round, right? You usually send your CV, maybe answer a few questions, add your portfolio link if, if they're asking, and sometimes even cover letter. Then you apply to like 10, 15 companies, maybe even more, and you wait, right? You wait one week, two weeks, three weeks, nobody replies. So why is it happening, Ioana? Let's try to unpack what could go wrong in this couple of weeks and why you don't see any result or return on your effort. What could <laughs> what could we do better? <laughs> Let's start from the mistakes. It's a big topic because there are a lot of mistakes that I, I see junior designers make. So even the people I'm, that come to me for mentoring, many times they're in the same situation. They've started applying to jobs. They think they have a pretty good portfolio. And many times it's a good portfolio. It's definitely not something they have to be ashamed of or not start applying with. But the thing is that I think what the industry isn't doing enough of is to consider the perspective of the recruiter. So I feel that even on LinkedIn, if you go on LinkedIn these days, recruiter, they get so much hate. <laughs> like everybody is against their practices, that they're not getting back to you, that they're not responding to also. And it's true. I mean, it should be a two-way street. So you're applying and, but they also give you feedback and everything. And so the communication should be there. But at the same time, I've been also chatting with recruiters and from their perspective, they get hundreds of applications. They have to go through them. They have to go through them quickly because there is a pressure to hire for that role. They go through applications. Many of them look the same. People don't put in any extra effort to kind of show their personality, show why they would be good for that role. So most of the applications aren't tailored in any way. They're not considering that particular job. It feels like it's just mass applying. And so for them, it's a very hard job to go through. I mean, it's their job. Everybody has a hard job in their job. But still, I think that we as designers in the way we apply, we're not making the lives of recruiters and hiring managers easier, even if they're not making our lives easier as well. <laughs> so everyone can improve. So to be more tangible on your question around mistakes, I think for me, from all the conversations I've had, the biggest problem is that they don't put in any effort. This is not necessarily re related to the portfolio per se itself. It's more about the application in general. So one thing that you could start doing is to sort of research the job you apply for, apply more intentionally, apply more mindfully, choose jobs that you apply to. Uh, this is the first step, right? Because then you can maybe tailor or articulate your message and construct your application around that intention with intentionality. And that's important in everything we do as designers. So even reaching out to the recruiter and giving them a meaningful message 
centered around, hey, this is why I'm interested in the job. And this is why I think I would be a good fit for it. And here's my portfolio. And, and the portfolio, make it skimmable, make it easy to go through, make it relevant, right? So some people go as far as to like change their portfolio, put in slides, take out slides, put in projects, take out projects based on the industry or job they're applying to. I think that's a bit of a going too much over the extra mile, but you can also consider that. So my first point would be tailoring your application, being more intentional as to when and what and how you apply to jobs. And then when it comes to the portfolio per se, there's a lot of conversation in the industry around cookie cutter portfolios. And I like to call them the checklist portfolio. And especially in the junior swim lane, you see that a lot. Juniors simply showcase the design process as a very linear, non-messy, clean and predictable path that they're on. And then they take the problem from point A and go to point Z and they go through a set of deliverables. It's called a checklist because they simply feel like they're checking off deliverables from a checklist. And then we've done the design process. Here it is. And this is many times you don't even have the part about this is what happened after that, right? There's no measurement. There is no outcome. So this is, I think, the major industry mistake that we keep seeing. And I think that even the, the design education industry can play a part, right? Because schools and boot camps and the entire education that we've built sort of show this linear process, which is okay because you have to teach people. You have to start from somewhere. You have to start from something. You can start from the ideal. You can start from the optimal path, right? The happy path of design process. But then in reality, when you'll be on a job, you won't be able to work on projects from like their inception, the, the idea, the first question that comes up and then up to launching the feature. Sometimes you you'll just be thrown into the process in the middle and you'll have to align and work with that. Sometimes, I don't know, collaboration is the messiest part of a project and many junior designers don't have that in their portfolios. So it's it's a bit artificial if you want. Junior portfolios feel a bit artificial or feel like they're in a, let's say, ideal box where other constraints are not being taken into account. And it's not their fault. I mean, I'm not saying that's a mistake. It's because they don't have the opportunity. You, we, we know the old chicken and egg dilemma. They don't have the opportunity of working on real projects within real teams and then understanding the complexity that goes into processes. But maybe there is a way in which they could like emulate that better. So to recap what I've been saying and then allow you to like not say everything, <laughs> I think the biggest problems are the lack of personalization and tailoring when it comes to applications and then also the checklist portfolio and then the fact that projects kind of feel disconnected from what it's like to work in a real design job and other aspects of the design role which are not captured in these kinds of linear non-messy checklist kind of projects. So those are the top three problems that I see that will get your application ignored. <laughs> what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, actually, I still have quite some to add. Uh, so first of all, I agree with your points. Those are really great points. And I believe we also discussed some of those points with uh, Sarah Duty, right? Uh, it was like a half a year ago, and it was one of the greatest episodes that I think we had so far. So definitely go and check it out. You can learn more about it from her as she was doing a lot of a lot of work in, in the job hiring space, helping designers to find their perfect jobs. There are three things I also want to mention. One of them being also cookie cutter portfolio, which I think we should actually talk more about. First one, and I would really like to start with like a statement I did right in the beginning, that one of the most common funnels or channels people start applying through is the job boards online, right? So typical process, very linear, very straightforward, very what I think it's a top mind thing to do, right? Just Google the jobs, start going online through different job boards, be it sometimes local networks, sometimes 
it's uh, Glassdoor and Global Network. I have seen things like AngelList, where you find the great new startups jobs, or again, like just any type of job boards or even personal. I, I've seen some creators have their personal job boards. So the very, very straightforward linear path. And I do want to challenge this because I think it's a problematic start because you embark yourself into the very competitive environment. You're like a lot of people will go down that way. It's, it's like, I don't know if you have read this book, Red Ocean, Blue Ocean. Everybody's following that top mind kind of linear path. And as everybody doing it, you got more people there more crowded there it's much harder to stand out and thus you give yourself less chances less opportunities to actually be seen even though maybe your portfolio is great and maybe you're a great fit for the role maybe you have everything what it takes it's just going to be very hard to get noticed and again like you want to mention recruiters are already having a tough time going through thousands of applications for some roles and really trying to see the jam in it sometimes it's getting blurry you see all the same things over and over again you have your biases i believe you just to miss some of the great portfolios you don't give chance to everyone because you know that as soon as you start talking to people this is much more responsibility you need to get back to them you need to give them feedback you really need to listen to them and it's it's a much more energetically consuming process to involve the team into it the recruiters naturally tend to sort of filter away more portfolios even though you might be a great fit actually so channel is a big 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 problem as for me starting from and fun fact as i mentioned uh, i did this survey because I'm trying to start working on a new course more about getting into jobs. And I did, like asked uh, two groups of people, people who are searching for a job and then uh, people who already have a job and ask them how they found the job. And so fun fact is that 99% of the people who are searching for a job go to the job boards. R- literally, it's top one thing. Every single person would go there. And then people who I've asked how they found job, I think more than 50% found the job in a different way than applying through the job boards. Again, I don't want to give numbers. I didn't do the proper math there yet. I didn't put statistics in place yet but I have the table right in front of me and like visually it does seem like more than 50% of the people didn't find job through the job boards a very very common channels are friend recommendation internal transition interestingly it was a discovery for me the ADP list becoming a big thing so ADP list is a mentoring platform where people are seeking for advice from senior designers or managers and thus they get noticed as they kind of expose their potential and sometimes they could get noticed there and kind of get a feedback on how can you apply and as you get noticed and you know get your foot at the door get sort of visible in front of the right people you might actually go through this internal application process another note i want to give here is that i know that many many companies and i literally know in prague half of the companies they don't do the job board posting for the sake of finding people they just do it for legal purposes they just need to have the job board in order to hire someone again legally just there has to be this place where they can always track to, but they actually trust more other channels and they don't always go through the job boards. Or if they do, maybe they do actually, but it's a cold channel. It's the place where it's much harder to stand out and it's just not a warm place enough <laughs> to, to, to trust people, right? So again, like I mentioned, the channels that seem to be working and from the statistics, again, like a very general one that I did and it's about 150 respondents in my survey. So around half of them did not find jobs through the job boards. So this is something to keep in mind that what we think is the right path might be a wrong path. It's very, very hard to prove who you are, what you're worth and why you're a great fit through a very general generic place with thousands of applications, especially 
if you still have some red flags in your portfolio, and we all tend to have some red flags and things that we don't notice, they could actually turn off. And again, in a first stage, the recruiters are looking to filter away your portfolio. So any little sign or any little sort of red flag thing can turn off your portfolio. And this is something that is, again, very hard to predict. You don't know what every single company is prioritizing. It's very hard to easily be sort of filtered away. So that's my first takeaway, or I guess my first challenge that I think I want to point out is that we need to keep in mind other channels and don't follow the blindly the first direction. Second one, definitely what you were talking about, it's a typical cookie cutter portfolio. And I agree with you, it's very easy to go down that path as well, like opening the Google, going to Medium, reading the checklist portfolio, what you should definitely include. I can actually even name the things that I'd always see in the portfolios. And this would be something like project title, brief description, process, the double diamond, definitely always there, or the design thinking process, then some beautiful perspectives, <laughs> devices with some UIs. Then you start talking through the process, there will be a lot of sticky notes on the wall. Then I would always see a lot of personas. And this is something I definitely want to dive deeper throughout this episode, personas. It's, it's, it's a big, big red flux these days. And then of course, high five frames. And uh, sometimes you pay attention and, and it's very natural because as a, as a mentor right now and you I want to probably familiar with the problem like we pay attention a lot to you know design thinking to to the process to the interviews to the user research to strategy and, and stuff like that and um, not always we spend enough time on the UI and I can see that you might have great process in your portfolio but then it comes to UI it's just lacking you can see the details are missing there and people didn't think through the details and then the UI is becoming in the red flag or a sort of turn off. And so again, like this very classic cookie cutter portfolio, all the same, all defaults. Like Ivana said, put yourself into the shoes of those recruiters who see those portfolios literally for years, every single day. How are you planning to stand out? How are you planning to catch the attention with this portfolio? How are you aiming to, to really tell your story? And so the takeaway, which we'll probably get in the next section of the of this episode is that I think we are lacking the, the personal touch and the personal story in every case study we do. And it's great to start from the checklist. It gives you some sort of sense of direction, but it's not just a, the thing that you just check out from your list and it's done. It's all good. You tick all the boxes. <laughs> You're a designer now. No, there's definitely more work that you have to do in terms of storytelling. The last thing I want to quickly, briefly go through is those red flags. And uh, this red flags thing is always the hardest thing to catch. I'm sure that I have red flags in my portfolio today that I'm not aware of. It's like chasing all the companies and asking what they're looking for in portfolio. And still, you'll never be able to understand all the problems. As the more I talk to different companies and different hiring managers, and this is at the moment, I guess, one of my priorities. So I'm trying to think how hiring managers are looking through the portfolios, the more I hear different things they pay attention to. And there are no patterns. It's always a very personal to their company thing. So it's an interesting thing. I will talk about some of the red flags I have heard, but it's always very, very tricky. And that's why I mentioned the first thing. Channel is the problem because in your portfolio, I'm pretty sure you will have red flags that you are not aware of. And nobody will be able to point those out until you actually talk to the person 
working at that company. So some of the red flags I want to mention are actually the most common one I keep seeing every single time is the buzzwords we use. We keep adding things like Web3, uh, disrupting technology, design thinking process, like all the buzzwords we see today on the internet, in the medium, the catchy titles, the clickbait titles. If you keep overusing them in your portfolio, it just becomes... Uh, it, just too sweet <laughs> and it's it become not trustworthy it's a big 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 no be very intentional with the words you're using there some other things i would like to mention as well is no personas it's very important and we let's let's talk about it in a in a second attention to the details so for example i think we had recently an interview with dennis the founder of figura the digital when he mentioned that because he's going through a lot of applications every week like 40 50 applications every week the big turn off for him is the details like when you see the UI, uh, for example, you're seeing the graphical elements of the iOS on the typical Android phone. Again, it's a wrong context. So those details will turn you off. If, if you're like not thinking about this, then you'll probably do a lot of mistakes also in the real life projects. Also, another thing I recently have discovered, for example, my current director at that news, he was talking through the portfolios he was reviewing and he asked me to join to review one of the portfolios. It was a very interesting exercise because we were going through that together on the call. And he would pay attention to the whiteboarding a lot. And he would point out that, mm, I love the whiteboarding. It's great. That's the most interesting thing for me. And then he would start seeing it. And literally, it would be the investigation mind that he would start seeing that, I don't believe those are real whiteboards. They don't have any scratches. They never wipe the board. They don't have any like tracing the previous sketches. How come you write an idea on the whiteboard and it was the final one and you never redraw it? <laughs> it's like, again, those details sometimes, it's very, very interesting. I never thought about it, but it's... Yeah, it's, um, it's sometimes something you don't understand or don't expect to see. And the last thing in the red flags box, I would say, not providing a user-friendly experience in your portfolio. So again, if you're, for example, sending a Figma link on the phone, it's going to be very hard to read. And sometimes recruiters would go through their phone to open portfolio and quickly go through it. Or for example, small things like when you're using Figma link as your prototype, if you're intentional about the flows, and give the people the task, maybe it's all right. But if you're sending them a huge prototype with millions of different flows and you expect people to go through it and understand it, then you're giving them a hard time. Maybe opt out better for the videos or GIFs to explain the solution because it's going to be very hard to find out what was your solution coming back to the problem you mentioned if you're just sending a general prototype link. And again, like small things like uh, PDF is still like a questionable thing. Sometimes I've heard that opinion that mm, it's not easy to open it. It's especially it's in a Google Drive, you have to download it. It's a clunky experience. But sometimes people always say like, it's still a classic one, right? It's It works. It does the job. But I would definitely try to, again, if you're looking to optimize your chances, I'd definitely look for ways to make your portfolio reading experience as user-friendly as possible. From different platforms, again, making sure the structures, the storytelling is there and the, the solutions you're providing are in line with the problems you're mentioning higher. That was a lot of a lot of things. So, <laughs> so Sorry for my huge, I guess, monologue, but I think we can actually get into the advices section. What do you think based on those problems we see today, what people can do better 
again, even like senior designers, for example, I know one senior designer who is looking for a job for two months and is becoming a bit frustrated because he never been in this situation. And so what are the things any designer could do better today to increase their chances to be noticed and then get to the interview rounds? Well, if you think about the fact that we are designers, <laughs> we could simply start applying the design process to our own portfolio. That's for me, a very quick way of advancing your portfolio or improving your portfolio. And how would that work? I guess that you would have your portfolio and then you would ask a senior design friend or even just apply to a real interview and go through it within this formal setup. But it can also be informal with, with your design peers and then ask for feedback and then improve based on that feedback. So it's basically, let's say, a usability testing session of your portfolio. And I think that's a very quick way of spotting, let's say, obvious or immediate mistakes like the ones you've mentioned, maybe details that were kind of for you, they feel trivial, but for some people that might be red flag or even sometimes typos, it can be as simple as that. But sometimes you'll get insights regarding the structure, the, the storytelling, the journey, the narrative. Does it make sense? Or do you manage to communicate where you started and where you landed with that particular design problem and project and to what outcome? So your peers and even your seniority, but sometimes it's better to talk to people a bit more senior than you, they will point out and they will ask the questions that you might get in an interview or, or that recruiters or hiring managers might ask themselves and then decide not to ask you directly. So it's important to test your portfolio and iterate based on the insights. Of course, sometimes it's going to be very subjective. So that's a note to be made there. You might talk to two different designers and you might get conflicting information. So if that's the case, maybe you want to wait until you take action on that particular point. Okay, so that's one thing. And then also I would say it should all start from yourself. So it should start with an introspection exercise where you figure out what kind of jobs do you want? Where do you hope to achieve in your career next? What's your preferred industry or kind of role or like what kind of team do you want to be a part of? Is it a team? Do you want to be like a design team of one and just be very independent? Do you want to move into lead roles? So what's your career goal? And then the portfolio should reflect that career goal as much as possible. So if you know that you're very passionate about a certain industry, then try to communicate that in your portfolio. Try to, of course, without making things up. <laughs> so tie everything to something that you actually have in your background experience and even personality. Try to align your portfolio to whatever it is you're trying to achieve professionally, whatever role you're trying to get professionally. That's in a way tailoring, but it's also like being mindful, being intentional about the way you design your portfolio. So that's another important thing that you can immediately do. And then obviously, I wouldn't say go check the checklist portfolio and make sure your portfolio is not that. But always question when you put something in your portfolio, start from the narrative. What's the story I'm trying to tell here? And then whenever you consider something that can go into that portfolio, ask yourself, does this make sense in my narrative? Does this bring any value? Is this persona changing the narrative or bringing any interesting insight? Or is it an important part of the story? Or is it something that we just did in that project because we had to have a persona? Did this persona kind of socialized research insights and communicated our work up to that point and then convinced people and changed the path that that project was on, then it should be in there. But if it's irrelevant, if it's just putting content in your portfolio for the sake of content, then you better leave it out and make sure that your portfolio tells the story of what was relevant or interesting or the simple journey of, of that project. Because sometimes we do things that are not so relevant, that are sometimes are not useless, I would say, nothing 
is completely useless, but they're not worth including in a narrative and in, in the story that we tell about that project. So always ask, does this thing here help build my story or is it unnecessary? I think there's also the quote, something along the lines of write drunk, edit sober, or I know that Chekhov was known for like uh, writing stories and then cutting 90% of what he wrote and then the 10% that was there, that's the story. I think as designers, we should also be able to do that exercise because it all comes down to being able to communicate the essential and it all comes down to being able to communicate efficiently. And that's a skill that we need to have and hone as designers. Try to be essential. <laughs> and in that way, you, you're not boring. You don't go into too much detail. You don't overwhelm the audience. You don't have too much text. So focus on the essential. And another thing that I think works very well is a sort of layering to your story that I've seen. And I also encourage my mentees and they always have it in their portfolio. It's like add the essential information or like the synthesis of an idea or of an exercise of a deliverable of a stage of the process. And then for whomever wants to explore deeper that particular deliverable or that particular stage or that particular point in the process, then you can link a mirror board, you can link a Figma file, you can link something that allows the reader to go into more detail than you're providing in the portfolio. So let's say in a way, I think it's similar to progressive disclosure in design. So show me something that's essential and then allow me to decide if I want to go deeper into this question problem space element. So that's something very interesting that just linking more detail to your portfolio, but keeping your portfolio scannable, simple, clear, and yeah, like I said, essential. Those are the top tips that come to my mind. Yeah, I'm curious to hear yours. <laughs> I really, really love the point about cutting the details. I, I agree with you completely. In general, I think it comes under this writing box. And I think as designers, we really underestimate the value of good writing. In many, many, many cases, UX writing is also a part of being a great designer. For me, actually, because I said writing, it's not necessarily just writing, UX writing principle, but just writing principles. I don't know if you have read any sort of content design books or even just like for copywriters, people who write texts that are selling, uh, there is this very often repeated principle of writing. Actually, it's also very common in the cinematography, if I'm not mistaken, but there's this writing principle that any detail that doesn't contribute to the story is a noise. And we can also think about it in terms of design language, right? Uh, it's also similar to progressive disclosure in the design terms. You give information that is only relevant in the moment and everything that is distracting people from understanding the story. And like Ioana said, if in the next steps, these details that you you have added is not related to the next steps or points, then it's just distracting the reader. It gives you extra noise. They get distracted. They start thinking about different questions. They might form different questions that you don't address in the next sections, and then you're losing an attention. So you kind of have to be very mindful about the attention. And people, again, they're only having a couple of seconds to go through your portfolio. They will read it in the diagonal way. It's very, very important to keep the story straightforward. So I, I really love this point. And I try to often follow the same principle in even like social media posts. For me, I'm always like trying to write three times, like one, like you said, really nicely, drunk writing, like write everything that comes to your mind the next morning or whatever, like after a lunch break, come back and read it again and like cut half of 
of it because it's probably just a dump and like see the line there, structure it. And then as you start kind of through thinking through the details, tweak those details. And then it's like the last stage where you're already tweaking the language and the structure is already there as you cut it. Anyways, uh, the other things I think I also want to bring up today and talk about in terms of advices is definitely the storytelling part. The biggest mistake is that we tend to follow checklists. Uh, we tend to look for guides, but our guide should not be do this, 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 and then you're good. No, our guide should probably be more of a, did I expose these skills that are relevant to me? So knowing my personal strong sides or maybe my transferable skills, if you're transferring from different industry. So reflecting on those and making sure you're exposing those, making sure you're telling who you are through your story. And instead of thinking, oh, I need to have persona user journey and the design brief in my case study, think of, did I show the elements of critical thinking in my story? Did I show that I think holistically? Did I show that I collaborate with other people? Did I show that I'm emphasizing with the users? Did I show that I maybe challenged status quo? Did I show that I can articulate my decisions? These are the checklists that you should rather try to focus on. What are your strong skills that you will always manifest in your work that you definitely have to show in your case study? And that's one of the ways how you tell your story. Other things or questions rather you should be asking yourself instead of just like, did I have your persona and, and, and user journeys in my case? So maybe reflect on your project and start again, high level from the story you went through, because every single project is unique. And what you do is always unique. We all think differently. If you give 10 designers the same challenge, I bet it all will have different results. Maybe some of them will have some patterns and similarities, but they will all have different results. It just goes to show that we all think differently. And you definitely have to show how you're thinking through your case. Again, showing that the checklist I think will not make you stand out, will not explain your story and will not make you a right fit for that company because we're not following the guides. Every project is messy and different. Always my key takeaway is that focus on the story, not the framework, so not the guide. And some of the questions you can ask yourself to achieve that would be, what was maybe my unique contribution to the project? What were the real interesting challenges that were unique to this project? What are the things you discovered you haven't thought about, but maybe very interesting and were important factors in this project? Maybe what are the aspects that make your head scratch May you thought maybe challenges that you didn't expect to have in. Tell those unique stories where your project went astray and you resolved it. And maybe you can also talk what went well. What would you improve next time? Mistakes you did. Key takeaways. What would you do better next time? Very interesting nuanced challenges that you didn't expect and stuff like that. That is the juice that makes your project outstanding rather than default and like classic to many other portfolios. Definitely focus on the story rather than process think what makes this project unique and different from others and make sure that as you write your story you always have the checklist of the skills you want to expose rather than process checkboxes you want to make sure you'd had uh, that would be i think it on my side but i think the last question for today that i, I mentioned a few times and i still <laughs> want to come back to to close that gestalt so you wanna let's quickly talk about the personas what's the deal with them <laughs> there's so much heated talk about it and yeah. i really want to hear what do you think about them do you think it's all right to have personas in the portfolio or is it a big red flag 
Well, I think they get a lot of hate <laughs> in the industry. I think for a good reason, because sometimes they're created mindlessly, if you want. Sometimes they have some research insight behind them. So they're based on what's the deal with personas in the first place. So basically, personas are ways of representing the research insights in a more digestible way, right? So personas help you socialize what you found out from research, help you, help you communicate interesting insights, it helps the team align around a particular let's say user archetype that everyone can keep in mind but they have some let's say deceptive sides to them in the sense that they can be very exclusive they can like exclude groups and they can uh, put you on a very narrow path where you're not seeing uh, left right so you're on in a tunnel vision if you focus too much around them but they're helpful especially in, in big teams or in, in companies where collaboration is the challenge personas sort of communicate the insights communicate the design work that's been done in discovery and in research up to that point so they have value but that should be something that's very clear when you add them in their portfolio so many people create personas because it's part of their school project because it's just what they see on the internet because they read an article and it says that you should have that on your checklist of deliverables and they just created and sometimes it's based in research other times it's just like it feels like it's completely made up and most of the times it ties back to research in one way but then there's a lot of let's say adding of elements that that come from the designer's imagination like the favorite brands or the, what they the, the user does on weekends or like the family situation we, we don't know that we can't put people in such a tight box Again, sometimes it might be relevant in certain contexts, but most of the times it feels like it's just an imagination exercise. So that's why I think they get so much hate. And to answer your question, I think that they make sense in a portfolio as long as they achieve something in your project, as long as they have a purpose and an outcome, right? So if in your project, you had a very scattered team that was in a very, let's say, conflictual mode, they couldn't align, they didn't understand why they were doing what they were doing, for whom, and so on. And then you did research, you gathered all this information, you processed it into insights, and then you communicate those insights through a persona and maybe other deliverables, like, I don't know, an empathy map, a customer journey, whatever you communicate you socialize these interesting insights and then the team says oh okay now i have a clearer understanding now i understand what we're doing and if it produced an effect and if it had like a purpose if it had meaning within your design process then by all means, it should be in your portfolio. But if it's just a step that you introduce without any goal, without any need for it, like just random, here's a persona. I'm not sure about this person, if it's like relevant, if that's my user. And many times it's just not one user. Even if we're using archetypes to understand like the main design problems we're addressing through our design or the main design needs, the main personal goals that our users might have, it can still exclude a lot of other archetypal users that we want to include. So careful with the persona, make sure it has meaning. Make sure there is a purpose to that persona in, in reality, not just in your portfolio. If, if it was useful in reality, it's probably going to be useful in telling the story in your portfolio as well. Love it. I agree. Like, I think you always have to ask yourself a question. Does this actually contribute into the project? Was there an, an element why it needs to be used? Or you were just ticking the boxes and that's it? 
And uh, I always like to think about personas as the marketing tool. For me, if it's just a small group of people you're talking to and then you're using personas for like two people, then maybe it doesn't make sense because you don't have to tell the story. You don't have to sell the story to, to different groups of or different stakeholders in your team. And then it's rather becoming, like you said, inclusive persona that you made up and might not even barely represent your group of users. Also, what is very big and important problem I can hear about in the social media or whatever in the different debates against personas is that we live in a very complex world and there are so many aspects to consider that we don't consider in the persona. So either persona has to evolve and become much more user-friendly or user-focused, or we have to drop them as UX tool because we forget about very important aspects, but they are so complex that nobody yet created the perfect UX persona, so to say, because we have different roles. Uh, one one person can have one role. Like again, you imagine you're working on a platform. It's a complex thing. There are different levels, different roles, different levels of responsibility, different levels of familiarity <laughs> with the product. There are first-time users. There are proper users who know the details of the whole, and, and shortcuts on how you to use your product. There are different segments. There are different user stories, different intentions behind different tasks. And then there are also, again, behavioral nuances you, you cannot always remember right there is this accessibility things you have to remember there are also people with different needs and it's very 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 hard to account for every single user story user need and intentionality and level of familiarity with the product or like again rolling up in the platform that if you try to really mention this all in your ux persona then you're doomed <laughs> it will be very hard for you to design that kind of persona and so to avoid that complexity i guess we're simplifying it very generally with like here what they like to do here their fears here their motivations and like just general portrait but they are often disconnected from reality and that's why they are becoming dangerous and i can see a big pushback towards not having the personas rather in your portfolio because they make you a disservice and i personally originally even in my course i had the persona module and i talked about the personas but i start thinking that it's it's definitely a bit better to sort of segment your persona and not talk about Mr. Michael, who is a pragmatic person, but really start thinking more about like archetypes, like you said, or really more about user stories or different roles and the goals they're trying to achieve rather than general, like linear, top-down approach starting from personas. So yeah, I think the takeaway for me personally in the last half year, year is that it, I would probably just for a sake of like removing the risks, like I said, in the first stages, when you're just sending your portfolio and you're competing for attention with thousands of other people, especially if you're going through the job portal, you need to remove the risks and you need to make sure you're not being eliminated for small red flags. And personas could be a red flag. So I definitely try to kind of reframe it into more of a tasks user stories, whatever, but not personas. But again, like Joanna said, if there is a strong need for a project and it was used intentionally as a marketing tool specifically, then I think you should keep it and again, just clarify this in, in your case. All right. I hope we covered this topic <laughs> extensively. I think we can actually move forward with our takeaways for today. And um, the question is, Joanna, would you like to start? Yeah, I can definitely start. That's the easiest role to have, right? Starting because you, you get to pick and choose from the big bucket of things we've discussed. So I would say the biggest insight or takeaway that I would want our listeners to have is that like with anything in design, and I think I'm becoming this boring grandma that keeps repeating herself, I feel that you should be intentional 
intentional. So your job application should be intentional. The story you tell in your portfolio should be intentional. Of course, everything we do in the design process as well on a design problem and project should be intentional. So as long as you have that intentionality of, and what does that mean? Why am I doing this? What am I trying to achieve? What am I trying to communicate? Why am I trying to communicate this? To whom? And so on. So if you if you stop at every stage of the design process and then in your design portfolio building and then in your job application and just question everything you're doing, it might slow you down in one way, but it's definitely going to produce better outcomes, <laughs> outputs, but also outcomes eventually. So be intentional, my number one tip. And then when it comes to the portfolio per se, so all portfolios will have things in common, right? You're going to have the context of the problem you're solving. You're going to have some details about the research, the research questions, the research activities. You're going to have that. You can't reinvent the portfolio completely because otherwise you can't tell a design story. So design stories have some similar pillars to them. So your obsessions shouldn't be around how do I make my portfolio different from all the portfolios out there, but it should be around how can I tell the story of my particular design problem and the project in a way that's meaningful and scannable and efficient. And so focus on the narrative, focus on the story, and you shouldn't be scared to have like a structure that's similar to portfolios, as long as it's not that, let's say, over the top kind of structured portfolio journey where you have like the design thinking process. And then based on every stage, the same set of deliverables and you just tick them off the checklist. So don't do that. But what you should be doing is focusing on the story you're trying to tell. And how do I get out the essential, get out the relevant of what happened in my design project and communicate that to other people. And then also, I think the last point I would make would be around, I think it was very interesting for me to learn that people don't get jobs from LinkedIn <laughs> and don't start applying on LinkedIn. So that's a very interesting insight for me personally. I want to repeat it as well. So maybe get creative in your job hunt and try explore different platforms, different approaches. Again, like I said earlier, apply the design process to your portfolio and apply the design process to your job application system. So Try to understand what works, what doesn't, what are you trying to achieve, test with people, iterate, test with hiring managers, test with your design friends, iterate, and so on. So it should be like a continuous improvement kind of effort like we do with our design work. Uh, so we have a, our mind trained already in that aspect. And just try to understand what works best for you. For me, I thought that people get jobs on LinkedIn, but it's interesting to learn that platforms and even ADP list is a surprise that but it makes sense, right? Because you want to build meaningful connections. You want to build one-on-one -on -one relationships with people and actually get them to see you. And so, yeah, it's interesting. Just experiment a lot and take note of what you discover and just apply those insights and iterate continuously. That's my last finding. How about you? Definitely. Like one of the points was challenge the entry channel. I think it's a very important thing that we don't think about enough. Start thinking about what are the warmer channels to, to start your reach out. Another takeaway, which of course we talked a lot this in this episode, is focus on the story and not on the guide. And you also mentioned a little bit about it. But I think the takeaway for me is that any detail that does not contribute to the story is a noise and you should 
keep it in mind as a principle as you write your story. Always like write storytelling versus checklist. If you want to use a checklist, at least tie it back to your goals and your strong sides. So reframe the checklist. Don't just search for what needs to be done in the portfolio and like follow the structure that somebody told you. Start from yourself. Reflect on what are your strong sides what you definitely want to communicate, what are the most common traits in your work, what people usually mention you for. Like, for example, you're always like this aspiring workshop promoter, or you're always this person that takes, pays attention a lot to the details and stuff like that, right? What are the core things that make you a different designer from others? And we all have our stronger and weaker sides. If you don't, then you just didn't do the reflection exercise and homework, uh, but start from yourself and then reframe those thong things you have discovered about yourself into the checkboxes. If you like the checkboxes, use it, but just use it based on your needs and your strong sides. And then you can definitely run your portfolio, your story through that checklist. Another takeaway for me would be to test your portfolio with the mentors as you designed it. Definitely just make sure you don't send it blindly, but at least somebody can see it and kind of from a different perspective, give you a feedback. There is an EDP list where I believe you can reach out to different mentors from different industries and it's also free. There is also a lot of creators. They have like a more dense one hour portfolio reviews. For example, I have it on Superpeer. I've seen Femka has it. I've seen some other creators creators have their like dedicated hour to portfolio reviews. I think that the value of having like a paid portfolio review is that you get much more dense insights in that one hour, but it's really your choice where to get your portfolio review from. And also, I guess, last takeaway, third one would be to be careful with personas. Always make sure they have a strong role in your case. If not, just reframe it to user stories, to archetype, whatever, but just try to be careful with them. And that would be it for today. Thank you so much for joining, guys. If you have any more questions or specific requests, or if you're dealing with a specific hard case or situation in your job, if you're transitioning to design, uh, just let us know. We have multiple ways where you can ask your questions. You can submit the question under the stickies in the Spotify, right under this episode. You can also find the link with anonymous survey where you can fill out your topics or case, whatever is interesting for you. And then you can also just reach out to us directly on our Instagram. You can find us as Honest UX Talks on Instagram or just reach out to me or you want to and uh, yes, it's very important for us to keep your topics coming because we want to make this podcast personally tailored to you and make it relevant. So thank you so much again. Don't forget to rate us if you found it useful and we'll probably see you on the next episode. Ciao, ciao. Bye, everyone. Bye. Thank you for listening.